My name is Stacy Sargent Lawton, and I'm a hospital chaplain. Each week on this podcast, a few fellow chaplains will join me to discuss an episode or two of the great TV hospital drama, ER, from our unique perspectives as spiritual caregivers. This is ER Chaplains Watching ER. Father, please protect my soul. Hi, and welcome to episode 10 of ER Chaplains Watching ER. It's kind of a milestone. Um, 10 episodes is apparently where some podcasts just sort of end. People get a little tired of it and it kind of peters out, but there's no petering out around here. The only peter around here is Benton. We're going to keep going. And I'm excited <laughs> to have three fellow chaplains with me tonight. My friends, Carrie Walker Nettles. Hello, Janie Toy Powell. Hi, and Sarah Jane Moran. Greetings. We are glad to have you all with us, um, listening. And to start things off, I have a recap of the first episode that we're going to be talking about, which is titled "Sleepless in Chicago." So, let's jump right in. Things are moving forward for nurse Carol Hathaway to foster Tatiana, the little girl with AIDS. She passed her home visit with flying colors. The girl is excited. Benton has been awake for 48 hours and refuses to sleep, afraid he's going to miss something and fall behind in residency. He's grouchy with everyone. Carter spends time with Mm -hmm. Mr. Klein, a patient with terminal cancer whom the staff did not know had signed a do not resuscitate order before they resuscitated him. Carter spends time trying to track down Mr. Klein's son unsuccessfully. Benton chides him for, quote, wasting time on a DNR. Benton is really pushing it with Dr. Hicks. She tries to force him to take a two-hour nap, but he just sits in the dark room waiting for time to pass. He has a serious problem. Doug and Carol have a little girl with a burn on the palm of her hand. Her mother says the girl touched the radiator knob, but Doug and Carol are suspicious. They call other hospitals and find she's been seen elsewhere for the same injury. The mother confesses that she was punishing the girl for, quote, touching herself down there. Staff calls the cops, who take the mother away from her crying child, but not before she scratches Doug's neck deeply on her way out. Dr. Koch from MIT Sloan School of Management is going around offering solutions to everyone's problems and talking about the wonderful modern kind of hospital he's soon to build. Susan especially likes the sound of it, and when he offers her a job, she says she'd be interested. Just then, two staff members from the psychiatric unit come to take Dr. Koch, whose real name is Marty, back to his room. He's a patient who keeps getting out and trying to practice medicine. Susan is shocked and disappointed. Doug and Mark care for a 16-year-old boy shot in the neck during a shootout with police in an attempted robbery. Benton is falling asleep, stitching up a patient, an alcoholic who is also asleep, and almost misses it. But he wakes up just in time to get to the trauma bay and quickly do life-saving procedures for both the boy and the cop. Dr. Hicks commends him and says it's a good thing she made him take a nap. Dr. Morgenstern is leaving to work at Harvard Med, but he tells Mark not to worry. He'll pass along his recommendation to the new chief, and Mark's attending position is, quote, almost a sure thing. Carter keeps death watch over Mr. Klein, reading him a favorite book until he dies. Benton tells him he'll never be a surgeon because he doesn't think like one. As Carol is visiting Tatiana again, the caseworker comes to tell her they learned of her suicide attempt last year and thus cannot allow her adoption to go forward. She's devastated, and tellingly, she doesn't go to her fiancé, Tag, for comfort, but straight to Doug's apartment. 
Doug, in this case, is a good friend and nothing more, and actually does the right thing for once. Oh, and Diane leads from risk management and has finally decided to go on a date with Doug. Benton arrives at his family's house to stay with his mom since Jackie and her family are going out of town. He says he'll set an alarm to get up in the morning before she needs her medicine, but he forgets and sleeps through her yelling his name from upstairs. When she tries to come down to him, she falls and has to be rushed to the ER with a probably broken hip. Jen is waiting for Mark when he gets home. She tells him she can't try anymore, and that in seven years of marriage, she's never compromised anything for her, so she's leaving him. The end. The end. But not really. So, Sleepless in Chicago. So I was thinking, I remember there being a lot of discussions when I was doing my residency, and that was in 2006, about um, the residents and the amount of time that they were allowed to be on and practicing medicine before they had to be off and have a certain amount of hours where they, you know, supposedly would rest, <laughs> although mm -hmm. we saw how Belton handled that. So I was wondering um, if that was when that became you know, something that was to be discussed. Um, and if it ever got passed into like, is there a guideline now or? <clears throat> I was on once for 30 hours um, and I would not recommend it. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I did not feel like I was really all that safe to drive home, to be honest, because mm -hmm. people often say that it can be compared to when, when you've been up for so long, it can be compared to being intoxicated. Yeah. And I really do believe that Benton is showing signs of that with his irritability, his over the top, um, his manic swings, and then finally he crashes. So, but I do remember that being a discussion at the hospital that I was doing residency with and that some of the residents were, agreed with it and some were fighting against it. Yeah, I feel like there are guidelines in place for that now. I don't think that they work at least officially that they don't work shifts as long as they used to like there are no more 48 hour shifts on the books i think that kind of thing still happens sort of on the dl but um but officially it's discouraged now well ostensibly the reason that this happened was because of all of the the shifts that benton was shuffling around with people so that he could be with his mother so Right. He didn't plan it that way. It just kind of happened. So like you said, it probably still does happen that way occasionally. Sorry. <laughs> I hear a puppy. puppy dog trying to, to speak <laughs> on our podcast. He's sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. But yeah, I know Benton is normally pretty grouchy anyway, um, so this just exacerbates it so much. And it was really hurtful that he told Carter he was wasting time with this patient, Mr. Klein, who was dying. Um, and he actually says, this is your surgical rotation, Carter, not pastoral care. And I was like, well, that's pretty rude. But also, hey, the writers know what pastoral care is. <laughs> yeah. I had the same thought. Yeah. <laughs> First mention. Exactly. We got a shout but out. Like, as nice as that is, what would it be like? I mean, can you imagine what it would be like if we received whole person care? 
You know, <laughs> if our doctors actually cared about our spirits. Right. Shocking. What a concept. Well, the problem is that often that they, that doctors try to do too much. My, my OBGYN, I loved her dearly, but a couple of years ago when I went for a routine visit, she was an hour behind and she knows that I used to work as a chaplain. So she apologized profusely when she came in the room and she said that there had been a loss in the office and that that is why they were so behind because she sat with the patient. And I said, you know, doctor, as nice as that is, you don't need to be doing that. You need to hire me to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so in that case, she needs to know her boundaries and she needs to know, you know, that there are other tools that are way more appropriate, like chaplains, to, to utilize, you know, the different cogs in this wheel that we so often talk about in order to, to make that holistic care smoother. I feel, can you guys hear me? Yes, I yes. hear you. Okay, sorry, thank you, because I had to readjust there. Um, I wonder, and I, I feel like, did what if your doctor just really wanted to do that and she saw caring for that patient through a loss as part of her vocation? Um, I struggle with this sometimes. If, if I should advocate more for... Um, our presence earlier with families, which is something we always kind of want. Um, but then I also know that recently uh, we had a situation and, and a, one of my nurse friends told me, I was so jealous because you got to care for their, you got to hold, hug them and, and talk to them and pray with them. And I had to do all my nursey things and um, didn't get to do that. And I felt like, it, I just asked myself that question sometimes, like what, when is it my job to empower that with them, like empower them to do that for their patients? Um, and when is it my job to do it myself? Like it's part of the assessment process, I guess. But what do you guys think? I spend a lot of time in my setting trying to teach my um, coworkers and teach my uh interdisciplinary partners to, to do more spiritual care, actually. Now, not in replacement of me, not be experts in something that they're not, but to be able to recognize, number one, in the first place, what a spiritual care, pastoral care need is. And they can do something. Um, but then there is a, I think Sarah Jane makes a valid point that we also need for them to recognize their limits too, so they can know when to call, when to refer, and when to create more positions. Um, right. Because yeah. There probably should be a chaplain devoted, especially to an OBGYN's practice, right? Because I mean, and like I knew there wasn't. About mm -hmm. I've never even heard of that. Does that happen? Well, this this OBGYN's office is attached to a hospital but yet there is no pastoral care presence there regularly. And I told her that I thought that that was a real shame, not in a blaming way towards her, but just recognizing that she needs to pass it on to the higher ups, that that is something that is recognized, you know, as making a huge difference. And it's a missed opportunity for a practice like that, especially one that is adjacent to a hospital 
not to have one, especially given what we know about the needs. And we'll talk about more of that in the next episode, but um, there are (laughs) countless opportunities for pastoral care presence to be steadily at work in a practice like that. But I also want these other interdisciplinary partners to recognize and respond appropriately too. I want it all, Jamie. I want it all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I, I guess my fundamental belief about all of this is that the more we strengthen them, you know, like if, if we encourage and we normalize spiritual care across the board for everybody and empower other people, they're going to trust us more. And they are going to call us when they really don't have time um, or when they really don't have the spiritual energy. And, and yeah. um, you know, we can be the experts. We can be the ones whose, whose job it really is to be there. Um, but I, I see so much value um, in, in, in them being able to do that too. I don't know how you, if you are a person of faith or, or even in a broader sense, a spiritual person, um, and you, you provide or you're, you participate in, in health care for others. Um, I don't know how you could not do that a little bit, even if, I mean, I think a lot of people do it uh, and they don't realize they're doing it maybe, or they, they try to, they try to provide spiritual care and they don't know they're doing it and maybe they're doing it well and maybe they're not. But um, I mean, what if we empowered them and gave them tools to do that? I don't, I don't, I used to maybe feel threatened by that, but I don't anymore, not in my setting, um, Mm -hmm. because it's about that trust and that relationship that we build with each other. Yeah, I don't feel threatened, but I definitely do like to do some some gentle education around like the the right way to do it, because there are some um, medical staff members who I've seen do it really, really badly and like. And to the point of possibly causing spiritual harm to some of these patients. Yes. And, and that is hard to watch. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. And that's because what we do is a skill. It is. <laughs> like, right. You know, it's so easy for people to think that anybody can do this, but it's something that we have worked hard to learn how to do. And, um, and, and that shouldn't be taken for granted. And it's just this funky, nuanced thing, I guess, that, that everybody can do it. Um, but also that it's, a, it's an acquired skill at the same time. And it's kind of like that, you know, do we, we talk about in our churches how we access God. You know, do we depend on hierarchies and clergy and liturgy or do we just go straight to God you know and and our different church models explore that but um it's just kind of a constant tension there and we have to learn how to live in the tension Mm -hmm. definitely um anything else with Dr. Benton and his not sleeping situation and how that leads to it makes me really angry I mean we've already kind of talked about the level of arrogance that he displays but when it's bitten or any you know like a real life um resident um on call 
your hubris and your belief that you don't need sleep, that you, you are so terminally unique that you don't need something like that to help keep you alive while you're trying to help other people stay alive, then you are a danger to me more than yeah. you are a help to me. Um, yeah, and he absolutely was. And they might have, you know, made a joke out of it, but it's not. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to like stop and ask him like why why are you a doctor? Like why are you practicing medicine? Like is it for you? Or or is it, you know, I mean, the the, yeah. the truth is for all of us we all do what we do a little bit for us and a little bit for other people, but I mean, that was so about him, and I just I thought that question, that somebody should have asked him that. It might have given but, him but some he's perspective. In, he's yeah. in such crisis right now between having to prove himself to his family and yet also failing his family in multiple ways that I kind of felt like he was like a little boy having a tantrum, to be honest. <laughs> like he just didn't know how to handle it anymore, and he was just melting down at every you know, emotional, physical, spiritual level. Um, yep. And I just wish that there had been some more consequences. I mean, I guess it was noted by, what, what, who is it, Hicks? Yeah. That, you know, what was going on. She's not going to soon forget that. But, you know, in the end, he really didn't get found out, quote unquote. So. No. And they weren't, there weren't any significant consequences. No, I mean, he's really skilled, but it was also just lucky that he didn't end up killing either one of those two patients that he worked on when he had just woken up from his little nap stitching the guy up because obviously he was not at his best. No. I mean, can you imagine finding out that the surgeon who operated on your loved one hadn't slept in however many hours that was for him? I mean, what? how horrifying that would be. Yeah. Oh, I'd be livid. Mm -hmm. Now, Sarah Jane, I also um, had a few on calls where I was at work for 30 hours. Um, you know, the other part of that is we do, we do have an on-call room, and there were times when I was able to go and rest. Um, and there were some times when I would do some preemptive resting, like... Um, you know, go to bed at nine o'clock when the ICUs close down for visiting um, in preparation for the midnight 1 a.m. trauma calls, you know? Well, I had plenty of 30-hour stretches that I had the pager during my residency, but right. most of those I was able to do, do preempt, whether it was after my classes and my rounds and all that. Um, but this particular stretch that I'm counting and only counting because of that, there was just one issue after another. And I did not, I, I think I lay down for maybe half an hour the entire night. Mm. And the rest of the time there were traumas, there was issues, there was, so that was the one time that I actually couldn't and didn't sleep, you know, not by my own choice. And that could really feel the effects of it. Yeah. And with the times that that happened with me in residency, I don't know what the longest one was, but there were some definitely long nights and I just do not do well with little sleep. And I was so grouchy and just had very little patience with the people that I was supposed to be chaplain to. I was, I was not a good chaplain in the middle of those shifts, you know, after 24 hours or so of not getting very much sleep, there was just no way that I could be as patient and compassionate 
as I needed to be. Right. So thank God right. I wasn't doing surgery. <laughs> thank God you weren't opening yeah. someone's body. Yeah. Yeah. Or measuring or counting like, you know, whatever milligrams or whatever you have to do for for medicine like right. a, for a, you know a nurse has to do I mm-hmm. I've recently yeah. been sleep deprived enough to think what is coming out of my mouth like this would not be happening if I had enough sleep like I just get real chatty more than <laughs> normal which my my normal is pretty chatty so <laughs> <laughs> I just I don't know what I tell people in the middle of the night <laughs> I do generally think that that anyone who is sleep deprived, their empathy goes way down. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's why with moms, it, we, you have to you have to step back a lot of times when you have you know infants or toddlers that are causing you to be sleep deprived. You just you can't look at it from any other perspective, and you're liable to fly off the handle. I mean, we all know that's a danger. So yeah. it, it really does affect your your empathy skills, and so for a chaplain, that would be a real issue. Yeah. It just, it, 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 consistent sleep and meals, I'll add, I think adds so much perspective or just give us a little bit of um, power to make good decisions. And I think we take that for granted. I think that, I mean, we, I see, I meet families sometimes and the, after the, after the patient is with us and sleeps a little bit and gets a little bit of you know, a breakfast, lunch, and dinner, it's like they're a different person. Um, and I know that's purely anecdotal, but I think there's, I'd, I'd be interested to see how that affects um, even some of our kids there for like behavioral health issues or something, you know, oh, I think that, yeah. that makes just a huge difference. And maybe that's the difference between kids who can have those issues and, and, and be able and, stay and succeed, I guess, it's and well make it. It's well documented in schools which kids are hungry, which kids have had breakfast, and that they don't do well. Yeah. They don't do well behaviorally. They don't do well statistically or academically with nothing. And it, it makes absolutely perfect sense. That said, I remember that that one of the biggest gifts that my husband uh, used to be able to give me when I was in residency was to come and have dinner with me in the cafeteria, which was a really big pain in the ass for him. I mean... And I used to think, why is this, you know, worth it to him to drive this ridiculous amount of time and come meet me for this mediocre food? I mean, it wasn't (laughs) too bad as it went. But um, I realize now that that made a huge impact on me and my mood. And I remember also, Stacey. I was just about to say. (laughs) Yes, that that we brought you Thanksgiving dinner Uh because we knew there wasn't going to be anything special in the cafeteria. And we wanted that to be a gift to you. Because I had just gotten out of residency, and I remembered. Yeah, and it was a huge gift to me. That just that was a really special Thanksgiving on call because of that. Because of you guys showing up with food and eating Aww, with me. <laughs> nice. But, you know, we have the wisdom from 12-step groups give us this little acronym called HALT. If yeah. you are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired... And, you know, this is some of what we're naming right now, tired and hungry, are some some basic things we can do. You know, you might need a little more self-awareness to recognize the anger or the loneliness. I don't know. But um, this is also another reason that um, one of my favorite 
tools in my chaplain toolkit is a cup of water. Like, yeah, take a cup of water yes. all the time, whether if somebody asks me for it or not, I just give you a cup of right. water. <laughs> me too. Like, and it's a big deal to me. And, and like, I, I know that people, like, I think my coworkers think maybe I'm over-functioning when I do that. And they think, well, anybody can get them a cup of water, but I'm like, no, Jesus said to do it. <laughs> and also... I'm doing it because they are probably so thirsty and they also may need a snack because they've been here at the hospital, like, and they're just, they've lost all track of time. And like, that makes a huge difference. And again, and, physically, the warm blanket, you know, which seems like such a small thing out of the cabinet also meets a basic physical need. Yes. Yes. Also one of my favorite little tasks. Yeah. yeah. Them too. Yeah. But there's something very spiritual about that. And I am passionate about the cup of water and I will fight. I will fight to defend my role of getting, I don't, I'm not that I don't let other people get the water, but you know, like when my colleagues want to bring up, if it's, <laughs> I, I will fight for the water. <laughs> okay. So Benton needed water and a blanket and a room to sleep in. Uh-huh. And probably and so a chaplain. Own anger. Yeah. And definitely a chaplain too. Yeah. Yes. Of course he would have just yelled at us and sent us away, but. Yes, absolutely would have. But that is our job. We can handle the anger. We can receive the anger in a non-anxious presence and recognize that it is not about us. Mm-hmm. Totally. And that, that comes from their skills. Chaplain. It yeah. comes from our skills, Janie. <laughs> awesome. Well, speaking so, I mean, of happened. sorry. <laughs> speaking <laughs> of skills, I'm glad that um we have some pediatric specialists skilled people here with us tonight. Um to talk about the little girl with the star-shaped burn on the palm of her hand. And then we learn that. This is her mother's way of punishing her for exploring her body and that her mother also suffered the same punishment when she was a child and she has the same burn scar on her hand. Um, I'd really love to hear from you child specialist people about that. Janie, you want to go first? Well, I thought about Carrie when I watched it, but yeah, sure. I just... Um, I just thought and when I watched that part about the general um, child abuse dilemma, like in the broad sense of what we see and how often we see it. Um, and, and, and just how I, I'll share this story. When I interviewed for my current job, um, I was asking one of the nurses on my interview committee about the general spiritual and emotional pain of working in pediatrics. And she said, you know, the hardest thing, um, the absolute hardest thing is, is the abuse and sending kids home, knowing that uh, are not feeling good about the home that they're going to. And, and she said that that was worse to her. Uh, it cost her more spiritually than, um, most crises you know, that happened in our place, which really, really hit home. And it's something I've remembered now for years, but that's yeah. a, it was, it's a huge compassion fatigue or trigger. Um, I think yes. for a lot of our staff is having to deal with that day in and day out over and over. Absolutely. Honestly, they kind of sugarcoated it. I mean, <laughs> I <laughs> thought did. with this family, but they did. 
so the other the other element here too is that um, my my friend and colleague Leanne and I are also sex educators mm-hmm. um, because um, teaching our children about their bodies and some sexuality like age appropriate developmentally appropriate sexuality education is a protective factor. So if they know about their bodies and they are more empowered to name what's happening if someone is sexually assaulting them. So I say that to say this, it is developmentally appropriate for a child of her age to be touching herself. Mm -hmm. When a child is doing that, it is not masturbation the way we think of it with our adult minds and our adult lenses. It is developmentally appropriate. It is, um, you know, to use my particular lens, God made us, made all of our bodies and called it very good, including our penises and our vaginas and our clitorises, okay? And they were designed in part for pleasure too, specifically the clitorises entirely for pleasure. So when children are discovering these parts of their bodies and noticing things about them, they're not necessarily... um, like striving for climax the way an adult is, but they are noticing and they're curious and God made us also PS with curiosity. And so when we respond to children who are in this phase of development with blame and shame and even torture, like this woman in this story, um, that sends a very powerful message to the child about their identity Um, and their sexuality. That's really unfortunate because then that does ultimately impair their identity and sexuality as adults and their ability to seek pleasure and experience pleasure shame-free because that's the way God created us to be. But we do have to remember the fact that this was something that was passed down to her from her mother. We and do. I would, I would um, almost suggest that there was perhaps a religious or fear-based, you know, stemming from this. Um, <laughs> Obviously. And, you know, we, don't, we go through childbirth classes, hopefully, when we're going to have a baby. But childbirth and rearing a child are completely different discipline we don't go to any discipline classes so this was something normal to her because she had experienced it not normal in the sense that she liked it or it didn't scar her but and that's why the difference between the way that carol and doug reacted to it um, was so poignant that he said that she was a monster and Carol said that she didn't think she was a monster, that she had just been very damaged when she was young as well. Mm. And that Carol also expressed that she had hoped that the mother would have a chance to get the child back, which is a tough one. For I can understand why she would voice that, but I'm not really sure how I feel about it. But how do you measure, you know, someone's <laughs> ability to parent? That could be very tough and subjective thing I suppose and our system is pretty broken for it so you know and and as Janie says it makes us so uncomfortable as um, pastoral care providers to think of children being sent back to places where 
these kind of things are going to damage their souls. So, <sighs> yep, this is, this is a really tough one. It might be easier to imagine her as a monster, but that's why, yeah. that's why it's interesting what Carol says. Yeah, well, Carol was able to bear some of the tension there that, like we mentioned earlier, and yeah. um, it would have, it is easier, and it, it, it is easier to see somebody as completely horrible or completely good and, um, and to interact with them in that way. It's hard work to just sit in the middle in the muck of all of it. And Carrie talked about last episode about trauma-based you know, care and realizing the difference of why someone behaves the way that they do. And that really opens up a door um, into understanding the mother's character. And the thing that's really heartbreaking is noticing that, you know, in between times when they're, when Ross and um, Carol are, are going out to, you know, make the phone calls, she's in there kissing her daughter and hugging her and showing her such physical affection and love appropriately, you know, but we don't know what else is going on in her head and heart too. Perhaps she does feel guilt. Perhaps she does have some sort of gut feeling that this isn't right, but that's perhaps reading into it too much. So, I mean, there is definitely something to be said here about generational trauma too, and the way that we perpetuate these cycles. Um, you're right, Sarah Jane, that you don't know what you don't know. And when something is entirely normative for you and you don't know about other ways of responding, then, um, then you don't know. Uh, but I, I, I saw what, what you just mentioned in terms of the appropriate care and love and affection towards her daughter when she wasn't burning a hole in her hand um, and shaming her for her typical development. Um, but like, it sucks. But you don't. You just don't get to do that. You lose your child. You don't get to do that. That um, was the right you, decision. Absolutely. You have some opportunities. You know, there's opportunities to receive education and make some different choices. And and maybe you know, maybe there is a redemptive possibility in this story. But um, it's pretty tragic, though. I mean, this is a tragic. Um, like inheritance from the Puritans, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I wonder, is it possible to educate these generationally, like these systemic issues that go back for multiple generations? Can we, can we teach that out of someone in a, you know, relatively brief amount of time? Is it even possible? In a setting like this, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, but we do have uh, data that tells us that um, there are specific classes, specific um, um, curriculum that we can offer parents um, that has evidence-based results that these parents do better. They catch less uh, charges um, for hurting their children afterwards. And a lot of times it is a situation like this where, you know, their parents parented them this way. It's the only way they know how to parent. Um, and so when we know better, we can do better generally. Now, it's not every single person. Um, we also have anecdotal stories too, right, of, of parents who 
are raised in a tradition where they're taught to spare the rod and spoil the child, which means if you want to raise your child in a good Christian way and you want to read all of these, you know, Dr. James Dobson kinds of things and and just do right by your child, then you'll spank them and spank them again until they turn out right. Well, you know, the parents who don't know the difference between um, I'm not advocating for spanking, but, um, you know, there's a difference between the kind of pop on the bottom versus a, a lasting mark. Um, and there are parents that we've worked with who are so desperately trying to do the right thing as it's been taught to them um, that when you kind of come alongside them and you offer them an alternative hermeneutic for some of those scriptures and some of those Christian understandings of parents, then they do better. Um, they hurt their children less. And um, there's some early research out of Pepperdine right now tells us that um, offering alternative theologies and, and interpretations to some of these conservative Christians who employ physical punishment can actually move the needle a little bit. Um, that's encouraging to me. Hopeful. And for those of you listening who are parents um, and, and have young kids and this the, the idea of all this stuff makes you a little uncomfortable, I really encourage you to, to do some research, to do some reading of your own on, on this developmental you know, behavior that is appropriate and finding resources to share with both you and the child. I was super fortunate yes. with my parents to have such an open mother um, from, the, from a very, very early age, and there was never anything that I was scared to ask her. And I know that this can be an uncomfortable topic for some people, but if you have if you have a book in front of you that is age appropriate for your child, it will help you with the conversation and it will help not make you feel so awkward and it'll help you know where to jump off from. So hopefully when we yes. when we do these um, show notes, we can put in some uh, some options for you to look up if this is something that you're not sure how to handle with your children. Absolutely. Because do ignorance does not equal mm -hmm. safety. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll yeah. make sure to put some good resources in the show notes. And and listeners, if you haven't been looking at the show notes for our different episodes, I would just encourage you to go do that um, on our website. There's always a link no matter where you listen to the podcast um, in the show description. There's a link to the show notes page. And you know, we really work hard to try to have some good resources in there for more information about the kind of stuff that we talk about on the podcast, um, medically and pastoral care wise and all sorts of things. And I learn a lot just putting the things together. So um, I, I really encourage you to read those. Um, anything else from this episode? we haven't touched on uh yeah we need to talk about carol and katiana oh yeah definitely so they they realize that carol is not eligible to adopt tatiana or take her home for any length of time from the home because of her um mental illness the past and her past specific suicide attempt that was nine months ago according to the nurse on the show 
And because of it being that length of time, she said, if it had been three years ago, we might have been able to work it out. But because it was, it has not even been a year, there is no way we can do this. But it's, it's, it's horrible to watch yeah. Carol, but it, you know, it makes perfect sense that there's nothing to be done. Uh, that's the correct decision. It is. It is. It's hard, but um, it's, it's understandable. Um, yeah. I think especially with someone coming out of um, a traumatic past like that, that they may see the opportunity to foster or adopt a child as, in a way, their salvation. And mm -hmm. that's a really unhealthy way to, to care for a small one, wherever their age. And uh, it's just, they're, they're protecting, they're protecting Tatiana. Even though we know Carol better, perhaps, but perhaps maybe we don't, I don't know yet. Right, or think we do, and and for someone you know prone to depression to to try to parent a child with a terminal illness could be a minefield for you know potential triggers for another suicidal episode. And do that alone, P.S. Because Tag is not on board. No. <laughs> and she knows that, which is why she goes to see Doug instead, and. This is just the best version of Doug. I was so proud of him in this in this scene when you know she comes there and she's crying and he just hugs her and and comforts her in a very appropriate, very friend-like way and tells her that she would have been so good for this child and then she is really vulnerable and asks him if she can spend the night and he then immediately asks her if she's told Tag yet what happened. And she says no and then goes in to try to kiss him. And he kisses her on the forehead. It's like my heart was melting. And then he offers to drive her home and just holds her while she cries. And it was just the best Doug possible. He did. He made good choices. Yes. <laughs> For once. For once. <laughs> For perhaps the first time. Didn't punch anybody in this episode. Way to go, Doug. That's a small story. miracle. Was it was it this episode or the the next one where he was like, just no more hurt kids? Yeah, like that. That's kind of your job, dude. I'm sorry, but it can be any episode. Yeah, <laughs> but you know what? Like, also, I totally relate. Like, mm -hmm. you have those days where, like, I'm just so tired of everyone getting sick. Yeah, was it that Deb said? Everybody's just so old and so sick. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hospital. Hospital. Yeah. Um, I just have to put in a little bit of trivia here because I was just running, you know, going around on Google and I was like, that little actress who plays Tatiana is so adorable. I wonder if she's ever been anything else. So She's all grown up now, and she was on This Is Us. She was the playwright that Kevin had a little fling with when he was trying to be on Broadway. And she's also um, Lily in the AT&T commercials that there are a million of. 
But she was, she actually was born in the Soviet Union, um, and her family came here as refugees when the Soviet Union was starting to disintegrate, and then they settled in California and weren't doing her well financially, and some, you know, whoever, Hollywood person saw her at a park or something and was like, that kid's pretty cute, why don't, why don't you put her in on TV? And she didn't speak English very well, so she was in a lot of commercials where she didn't talk at all. <laughs> So I guess they must have been really That's excited alarming. when this part came up <laughs> because she could actually use her Russian. Um, yeah. But she seems like a really cool person. And she, being a refugee herself, um, she went to a refugee camp in Greece a couple of years ago. After, well, whenever it was after the picture came out of the, the little boy who drowned, you know, face down on the beach. She was just heartbroken by that and went to this refugee camp. And, um, and from her experiences there, she started a charity called Can't Do Nothing that helps raise money for refugees. So, look, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. So, her name is Milana Vaintrube, the little girl who played Tatiana. She's pretty awesome. Cool. Good job on that trivia. Yeah. That was just fascinating to me. So, any other thoughts about this episode before we take the deep dive <laughs> into depression of Love's Labor Lost? Mm. Okay, then, listeners, buckle up. Um, we will be back after a short break to talk about one of the famously saddest, most devastating episodes of ER. There are many, many thought piece, think pieces about it online love's labor lost when we come back in just a bit and we're back here to recap our next episode is sarah jane all right, Love's Labor Lost, one of the famously sad episodes of ER. We will begin. A gang-sitting victim dropped off, quote-unquote, from a moving car is a teaching situation for Dr. Green, who quizzes his interns with confidence and even humor. Benson continues to struggle with allowing the hospital to treat his mother without interfering. This includes a run-in with the orthopedic surgeon, who tells him multiple times he has overstepped his boundaries. A diabetic man attempts to power sand a tattoo off his arm. A preteen is poisoned with insecticide while helping his father at a plant nursery. But the overarching story in Love's Labor Lost is of Jody and Sean O'Brien. They are expecting their first baby and are at 38 weeks. Jody, age 30, is diagnosed in the ER with a bladder infection, but later passes out and has a seizure. There is a lack of support from OB during the whole episode, and they are described as slammed. Green's confidence wanes as the induced labor drags on, and he is forced to try and deliver. The baby ends up being larger than estimated, and the shoulder gets caught. Green continues to page for help, but realizes he is in over his head. His confidence deteriorates as he is forced to attempt a cesarean. There is blood in the uterine cavity, an abruption, and the baby is blue. The baby is finally revived, and they believe Jody to be stable, but then she then crashes again, finally bleeding out. Green is the last to stop life-saving measures. Yeah, so it's a pretty 
it's a pretty harrowing episode. Um, it goes through sort of the whole the whole day. It keeps showing us the clock over and over again. So it's she comes in a little after one p.m. when Mark thinks she has a bladder infection, and then time of death is six forty-six a.m. the next morning. And in between, just everything that can go wrong possibly goes wrong. And a lot of it is because Mark doesn't exactly know what he's doing. Um, he's he's very confident. Um, earlier in the day, he you know he has some good saves and makes some good decisions. And but with her, he keeps calling for Ob. He's doing what he's supposed to do, but nobody from Ob is showing up. And he's not an obstetrician, and he just doesn't know what he doesn't know, uh, and keeps going on his assumptions, which are not always right. The thing that makes this episode so hard to watch is that they work very hard to set up the humanity of the couple. Yes. When they come in, for instance, the first time they come in when Green diagnosis with um, bladder infection, they're giggling. Mm -hmm. They're so happy. Um, to, when they hear the heartbeat, they just can't contain themselves. Um, down to speaking about, you know, what they want their birth plan to be. Um, arguing over names. Uh, it's just... They, they do such a good job of making them human with personalities, with hopes, and with dreams. Um, they, they could be pretty much any first-time parent that I've ever met in the hospital. Yeah, we do spend a lot more time with them than we often do with patients on ER, and that makes it all the more um, heartbreaking for sure. And then if you watch The West Wing, the fact that it's a baby Josh Lyman is kind of heart-tugging, too. <laughs> that killed me. That killed me. It's like, Josh, oh, oh you've endured no, so much he... trauma. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. I thought he looked familiar. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm not too bright sometimes. I found it painful just how much I was rooting for them, for Dr. Green and for everybody else. I just even... Even though I've seen this, I had seen this episode before and I knew the outcome, I was still just, I found myself rooting for them. Yes. And, um, and, and just this, the sweaty doctor phenomenon, like I have, I've been with families and the doctor's all sweaty because he was working or he or she was working so hard and it touches my heart. Because they're just, I mean, they're just pouring all of themselves into it. And he was doing that um, over and over, even if he was making um, an incorrect medical assessment or decision. He wasn't even supposed to be there. No. The shift was over. Yeah. So again, he's probably been there too long without enough rest. Yeah. Yeah, he had just been... Susan said he would, she would take over, and he said he wanted to see it through. Right, because he thought OB was going to be there any minute. This is also that fine line, the blessing curse of um, doctors and nurses becoming maybe too attached. Um, so on the one side, we do want them to connect with the humanity of the patient and not just treat them like a bag of bones they have to fix in front of them. But then the flip side of this is when they become so connected that they're I don't know, their stuff is bound up with this patient and the family stuff, then it can run the risk of becoming, because he said a couple of times, right, 
can run the risk of becoming problematic. And you hear him say, I need to see this through. I need to see this through because, you know, I, I, I missed something at first. So I need, like, yeah. that might be a sign that you actually need to tag out. Yes, I remember being taught that in residency. I'm not saying that, that pastoral care is quite as serious as when you're actually, you know, taking care of someone as, as a physician. But mm -hmm. I remember saying... It's to, very serious, just in a different way. Yes, yes. Thank you. But I remember, um, <laughs> you know, my teacher was saying, I, I kept saying, well, I just couldn't leave this person. I just couldn't leave. I had been with them on the trauma for like five hours, and I kept mm -hmm. trying to find an out, and I couldn't do it. And finally he said, I think this sounds more like it's about you than it was ever about them. Yep. Yes. Yep. And that has always stuck with me because it hit me hard. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Would that all of the disciplines were required to learn about and practice the level of self-awareness that CPE demands of chaplains. Amen. Which isn't to say that I haven't met chaplains who are totally obtuse, but yeah, yeah. Come on, Carter. This is a surgical rotation, not pastoral care. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're trying to do. <laughs> right. So I'm just I'm just struck by, like I said, I was, I was reading a little bit about, I always do a little bit of research online about these episodes and it's interesting that people, like there are some episodes and things about ER that people are talking about on social media a lot in the past few months because ER is back on Hulu in the States and it's the first time that it's been streaming um, for anyone to, to watch. But this episode, I mean, there are, there are so many articles written about it throughout the years that ER was off the air. And I mean, it aired in 1995 and there are things from, from pretty far back that are still archived online about it. But then, you know, some of the things were written like 10 years after it aired, but way before you could watch it streaming online. And just, it just am amazed me what a big impact this episode had on a lot of people. And, um, one of the articles was written by a woman who said something like, you know, every woman over the age of 35 remembers watching this and knows about preeclampsia because of this episode, if nothing else. And she was like 12 when she watched it, which she was like, that was probably too young, but man, did it make an impact. I had preeclampsia. Did any of you all? No, I, um, I remember my, I was in my residency, um, and it was, I was wrapping up a unit writing. I was writing my unit evaluation actually in my, um, OB's office called and said, you have to go home like right now. And I was, I was like, what? Like, I just, you know, it just, I didn't feel like going home. It didn't seem like the best idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was alarming to me just how um urgent it was that I go home and I don't I don't know how much that I wonder how much that affected it I mean I don't I guess they were thinking about the possibility of how much I could have been on my feet and the emotional stress but um I mean it was like a very dire phone call and I was caught off guard by it 
That sounds scary, Jamie. Yeah. One of the one of the things that I did think were repeatedly about this episode. You said your OB office called you, and you know they were on top of the situation, like very well, serious. Well, and what and what I had was preeclampsia. She had eclampsia. Right. You know, yeah. she had already so crossed. Yeah. yeah. But but she came. So she was thirty eight weeks, and you know. It sounded like she was a pretty average woman that had probably had some prenatal care, mm -hmm. and this had been missed up to this point. I mean, I don't know what, what if it can develop at any point, but first of all, you know, it's not like this is the middle of the night that she comes into the ER. Why didn't she contact her OB's office? Why, why did they choose to go to the ER? Uh, um, I think we could ask that question about a lot of those patients, but <laughs> I, I suppose so. But I think especially when it comes to, to pregnant women, this is, it's not, I, I mean, I guess that we all have a tendency when it's, you know, ourselves or our loved ones to overreact and think that that's going to be the quickest way. But I mean, nowadays there, there's all sorts of, you can talk to nurses on, on the phone, you can leave messages, you can, there's so many resources, um, and so I just don't understand why throughout all of this, OB was nowhere to be found. I find that really hard to believe that nobody would have, I don't know. Well, because the show is not called Maternal Observation. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the okay, excuse that was made was that the other, one of the other doctors was doing a C-section, an emergency C-section, another one was at a different hospital, and there was all kinds of stuff going on, but... Well, and we have those times where it comes in waves too, you know, like the barometric pressure does whatever True. and the storm comes through and all of a sudden everybody's having a baby True. at yep. the same time. Like I, I gave birth kinds of nights where the, the midwives at the birth center were working as fast as they can drain one tub and clean it so they could turn around and fill it before I dropped a baby on the floor. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, the same night with my second. That's that's true. That happened. It was and it was close to a full moon when I had my yeah. second as well. They had to move me from the delivery room to another room because they didn't have enough delivery rooms going. It was madness. Yeah, yeah, true, true. So I mean, I totally get that. Not that you know the call for spiritual care is the same as an emergency, you know, birth or or OB intervention or whatnot. Um, you Jamie here just as important <laughs> just different um but I, I mean I I can remember one specific on call it might have been like my last one when I worked at the hospital um full-time or one of the next to last ones but there was there was a stretch of time and I had never experienced anything like it before where it was page after page after page after page of all of these different, completely separate types of spiritual care needs were all presenting at the same time. And, you know, like there's just one of me then, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, until, until the day, day staff come back in. And um, there were several things where I just had to be like, I'm sorry, I can't be there. And I won't be there for probably two or three hours. So, it does happen. Um, here's one thing I found myself wondering, and I would really love um, the input of, of like one of our OB friends um, for this conversation. 
how much of Green's own personal anxiety factored into some of these decisions? What I mean to ask is how many of these interventions were necessary at that moment versus were they based on his anxiety? Yeah, it really seems like he's just like trying to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Like he's down there naming all these different techniques and well, let's just try this one. Let's just try this one, you know? And, and at one point he asks a, a question about the, the thing that he's about to do. And Susan says, are you asking me? And he says, I'm asking God. Oh yeah. I kind of thought he was naming all of the things he knew about obstetrics. Like, yeah, I think he was I doing that too. What I know. <laughs> but I think most of it was observational. Right, he had never done yeah. this before. Yeah. Right. One time I read about this procedure. <laughs> like, here, <laughs> let's try it. Just so that like they maybe to get the, the rest of the team to have some confidence in him. You know, they were all, did you guys see the looks on their, like Carter's yes. and Deb's faces? Mm -hmm. That yes. was just powerful. Even, even the seasoned nurses were pretty horrified. They had no idea yeah. what, right. well, as soon as he called for the forceps, I was like, this dude is way out of control. I just, they don't, they don't do that anymore. They don't, I, I know this was a while ago, but forceps, no, no, no. Well, they do still do that, but not very I don't, often. Don't know that that's the wisest. So when I was when I was going to have a baby, I did a lot of anxiety-based research, um, <laughs> and I came across some came across some information um, and has a pretty um. Intervention rate. That's the development that we can use when we need it. Um, but I think like the key is like when we need it. So, um, and I'm wondering how that applies to like some of the other OB interventions that get used too. So. If we use them before they're really needed, they end up actually being more detrimental to the care of the mother and possibly even the baby versus Oh, Carrie, you're breaking up on me. I can't, I, I'm not, I, I've lost most of the conversation. She's talking about interventions and if some of them are, I know that forceps are still used, but they often cause brain damage. Um, so they're an absolute last resort, uh, as well as the episiotomy, uh, which he did twice, I believe. Yes. He opened yes. Her up even, and that is not, episiotomies are a very uh, uh, sticky thing. <laughs> Um, amongst the, the world of OBGYN at this, this point in time. Yes. Um, and my first birth did not go so well, and I was induced. And it, it, I wouldn't call it traumatic, but my goal for my second birth was to not tear. Like I tore very, very badly with my first one. And I'm convinced that it was because I was induced so fast. Ah. So with, yes. my birth, with my birth plan... For my second, um, I had done a lot of my own research. I, I had a doula 
who knew what my goals were and it made all the difference. And it also made me more relaxed. Although I, I don't know, this, this particular, Jody O'Brien went into the actual birth part. Didn't really sound like she even completely understood what was gonna happen. I don't know. She just seemed so nonchalant about the whole thing. She did say that she wanted to try for a vaginal birth, but she, I don't know. Her attitude was just um, strange to me. So I wondered, I don't think that, uh, I don't think that birth plans were really a big thing back in the mid nineties. Um, no, I don't think so either. But we see here, and um, Carrie has sent me some articles that listeners I'll put in the um, show notes, but a, a lot has been written lately about just the horrible state of maternal care in the United States, that we lose so many mothers needlessly, and so often it's because their doctors just don't listen to them or don't believe them when they are trying to advocate for what's happening with their within their own bodies. And we see a little bit of that here with Mark thinking he knows better than this mother when he, you know, measures the baby um, and, and then he walks out of the room and is talking to Carter and says, well, she said she was 38 weeks, but she must be wrong about that because the baby was too small. But no, he just measured wrong. The baby was way too big. He just didn't quite know what he was doing. And if he had listened to her about her pregnancy, maybe he wouldn't have tried some of these things that ended up being disastrous. Mm -hmm. Because the size of the baby is why the shoulder got hung up on her pubic bone. Yeah. And I mean, the laughable thing there when he does the second episiotomy, like what part of that does he think is going to fix the fact that the baby's hung on the pubic bone? Yeah. I think he was just desperate at that point. Gosh, y'all, the things we do to women. Seriously. And every woman, um, I just read today that Beyonce has just said that with her twins that she had preeclampsia and was put on bed rest and ended up having to have an emergency C-section and just how scary that was for her. Mm. Goodness. So, yeah, we are um, leading the world in... Uh, the highest maternal mortality rate of the developed nations, according to like the World Health Organization, Amnesty International, lots of different um, organizations out there tracking this kind of data. Um, and it's actually gone up in the last five to 10 years, um, which is really yeah, disconcerting. Yeah. yeah, it's alarming. Troubling. Mm. I think that one of the, the main problems that we have is that we don't listen to women. Mm -hmm. Yes. And their, and their gut feelings and their instincts about their own bodies. Because we live in a world that doesn't trust that. But Preach we've it. also been taught not to trust our own bodies as well. Yeah. And one of the things that I did in preparation for my second um, child, my daughter, was to do hypnobabies. And you can call it crazy all you want. I don't really care what you think about it, but it empowered me to understand and to be able to express 
what was going on with me during my birth. Yes. And that made all the difference. That's awesome. Yeah. I think really one of the things that makes this particular storyline so tragic, um, and and we see it in, in other storylines in this show and other shows, but the um, this is this is the experience I had when Derek died on Grey's Anatomy for Pete's sake. Like it is the the preventable tragedies yeah. um, that are Absolutely. really the biggest gut punch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In TV and real life. <laughs> it's also alarming how fast a particular um, OB's office can shift in in their views and in their standards. I had one hospital with my, with my first child, I had a hospital that I really had great confidence in, but by the time I was pregnant with my second, I, I wasn't interested in using them anymore because I knew the statistics and I had heard the stories from close friends and even staff members. And I might be treading on dangerous ground saying this, but I was not interested in delivering there anymore. Mm. So I switched. I switched OBs, I switched everything in the middle of my pregnancy, my poor husband. Mm -hmm. um, but again, those were my instincts that I was following. And so it, it, it can happen, it, and I'm not sure what, what, what the impetus to that is, whether it's a particular set of uh, lawsuits that comes up, whether it's a fear about a particular incident that happened, or what it is that can shift that view on you know, not listening to women or not being open to new ways of doing things or, but uh, it, it sure has happened around this town. I can tell you that. I just saw something on Twitter tonight. Um, an ER doctor in another country wrote a tweet. I follow several um, physicians because I just think it's interesting. But anyway, so this popped up in my Twitter feed and he said, Patients shouldn't be allowed to see their blood pressure readings on their um, home blood pressure monitors. They should be in a black box and only the, the doctors can read them. Wow. And I um, uh, was alarmed because I felt like, um, what does that say about, does, do they have some special knowledge that the rest of us aren't? I mean, I... I replied, you know, you can tell them what you know about that. Like you, you can tell people how to, you know, to take multiple blood pressure readings and don't flip out if it's, you know, you get one that's high or whatever, you know, I don't, I think that's what he was referring to. Somebody had one high reading and came in to the ER. Um, and I just was so alarmed at that distance that he'd put between himself and his patients without, I'm assuming if this is a patient in the ER, he doesn't have a lot of knowledge about their background. Um, or their ability to understand. I mean, they might be pretty smart too and um, have every ability to understand what they need to understand. They've just never been told. But if you believe that the blood pressure monitor should be in a black box, then how are they ever going to learn? And um, I don't know, it just really was, it really alarmed me that that he had no interest in, it, it was a, everything was seen as a waste of his time. Um, and, and, and it was like a, an us birth is them mentality, which um, I don't. I don't think that Dr. Green really uh, uh, probably ever did that in the show. Um, he was really pretty good about that. But um, 
just thinking about some of these listening to women issues and listening to people talk about their own bodies. I mean, who knows our bodies? I mean, we know our own bodies. We know what normal feels like. We know what our baseline feels like. And um, that's any human being. But there's this old, outdated medical model, I think, that maybe teaches physicians to to have this distance, which perhaps the distance serves them well in some capacities. But in that tweet I saw, um, you know, it, it seemed uh, just, it, it was, it, it shed light on the alarming piece of it, the dangerous Wait, piece of it. Do you mean it. the old-fashioned yeah. medical models where the uh, women came in in the 50s, were separated from their husbands, knocked mm -hmm. completely out so the men could deliver them however and whenever they felt like it, like that? Yeah. <laughs> I prefer sure, the yeah. old-fashioned <laughs> medical model of the um, midwives and the witches who were the experts on women's bodies <laughs> and knew exactly what to do and had a low maternal mortality rate before the patriarchy drove them into the east of Eden or whatever. My cousin <laughs> Stephanie, I've mentioned her before, um, just about to graduate midwifery school, uh, works in the hospital system in Southside Chicago for women of color and trans women um, and anyone who doesn't have uh, the money or uh, resources to have these kind of, uh, you know, people come to their aid. And I loved it because she was sharing um, the story. Her, her mother came from Mexico and she was her first child. And uh, she spoke English very well. I mean, I, I knew her, know her very well. Um, but in the hospital, they, they considered that she knew nothing about her own care, wouldn't let her husband stay. This was 1981. And so she said that um, she had a dramatic, a traumatic birth story even coming out of her own mother and that she was carrying on that legacy. Mm -hmm. And her mother went on to have several more children and to make sure that that didn't happen to the same extreme again but um you know just because uh, her mother spoke two different languages she was that's not worth listening to because she had a different color so i think there's also some cultural competency and cultural humility um to factor into this conversation too like um the dr janie that you follow on twitter seems to have a significant amount of, of arrogance around um, the sort of, I guess, like Gnostic medical knowledge. <laughs> yes, Gnostic <laughs> is a great word. Yes. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, we, we have an even higher rate of, for example, maternal mortality rates among African-American women. Mm -hmm. um, so what are the ways that... Um, this sort of patriarchal default in Western medicine approach to women giving birth right now, um, not just negatively impacts, you know, white ladies, um, but significantly impacts women of color even more so. And um, women who don't have um, the financial means to just up and find a different doctor who will listen to her or whatever the case may be. I mean, um, it becomes layered and, um, nuanced a topic when we factor those in well remember our other favorite show Grey's Anatomy when our friend Dr. Miranda Bailey was having a heart attack and she yes was, 
telling all these doctors that she was having a heart attack and they kept saying, oh, you're not not really having a heart attack. The numbers say this or the blah, blah test says this. And she's like, I know I'm having a heart attack. And she had to. And, you know, she's a tough, assertive, amazing, smart woman. And she advocated for herself and uh, um, over and over. Um, but not everyone does that. Not everybody has the can do that. Um, yeah. I mean, she's literally kind of like an expert yeah. about bodies, you know, and had to advocate for herself and wasn't taken seriously. Right. Right. Yeah. And I can't, I've never had a baby, but I'm trying like hell right now to have one. And I'll just say that the infertility world I've found enormously frustrating because there is so much, I guess, distance, like the doctors just, and everybody at the clinic just seems to not want me to not want to let me know anything. Like I had to go through so much red tape to get access to my own test results um, of, the, of the blood work that they did. Like it was, it was ridiculous. Like they were looking at my numbers, but they weren't telling me what my numbers were. And it was kind of like, well, if you need to know, we'll tell you. But no, I want to know all of the numbers, even the ones that are not abnormal. I would like to know all these things because it's my body and I would like to know what's it's going on with it. Yeah. But I had to fill out like yeah. several different forms and talk to people and then wait to get access to my records. Okay, the Enneagram 8 in me makes me want to rise up and fight. Like, I'm very angry about that on your behalf. Yeah, I was too. And I had to keep asking them, which I'm not normally a person who likes to bother people. Like, thank God that I am in my 40s. I mean, it kind of sucks fertility-wise, but um, but I'm, I'm more assertive now than I was like 15 years ago and don't really give a crap as much about what other people think of me. So... That it like they were getting so annoyed with me that I kept asking for these things. I had to ask them three times and fill out paperwork and send another email, make another phone call. But but I kept doing it because it's like, you know, I I want to see what my test results are. I should I should yeah. know those things. Yeah. You so know, even a month. Go ahead, Sergey. I think about how so many cultures have have developed death rituals. Some of them might be healthy and some of them might not. Uh, what, what is our um, country's birth rituals and what are we doing to preserve them or are we stamping them out? That's one thing that mm -hmm. my, my cousin is also working on as um, a Mexican American and as working with women of color to try and redefine what some birth rituals can be and how that can be used to empower women as well. Since this is such a sacred time in their lives and in the lives of their families and you know the the husbands or the partners or whoever alongside them I'm certainly not leaving any of them out but those birth rituals need to be brought back and celebrated it will do nothing but strengthen what goes on right right so i was going to say uh, among spiritual caregivers you know we have all different kinds of personalities and all different kinds of ways we show up and do the skilled work that we spent many years and lots and lots of money to be able to do um 
And so, you know, we show up and we offer pastoral care in different ways. One of the ways that I show up in the world and I show up as a spiritual caregiver is sort of like an advocate chaplain. Um, So not necessarily pushing my agenda, but if I see that you have a need or a want, like I am there for that. I am the wind beneath your wings. I am talking to people. I am (laughs) twisting arms. I'm rattling chains. I'm doing whatever I can to help you meet whatever your goal is. And have a chaplain there. Am I, am I with you? Because Skype's getting existential. Yeah, you're breaking up again. Oh, boo. Yeah, sorry, Uh-oh. Carrie. Can't hear you. Um, anybody else? Have- well, I, <laughs> feel like, I feel like we should probably wind down. We've yeah, we need to. Our box is enough. Um, <laughs> you know, this, this episode touches on so many emotional buttons for so many different people for so many different reasons. And we know that there's a lot of things about the healthcare system that need to change. But in the meantime, um, we're all going to keep showing up and we're going to do the best we can, you know, for our patients as, um, as chaplains. So just know that we're, we're thinking about all these things and um, they mean a lot to us. Yeah, and we'd love to hear from you listeners about your experiences and your thoughts on these things too on social media. Please let us know. Anyone have any final thoughts before we wrap up? I'm I'm just thinking um, kind of from what Sarah Jane said, it's just really important to have big picture people in hospitals too. Um, so many, I mean, it's, it's our doctors and our nurses are so amazing and skilled and can do so many incredible things and they do have so much knowledge. Um, but I think it's also important to have people there like us or social workers or child life specialists or um, patient experience advocates, people like that who whose job it is to step back, um, who don't have an immediate detail-oriented kind of task to do in a situation, who can step back and look at it. And I think um, it would all crumble without, without either side, but I think it's important um, that we that we advocate and value for the role of the big picture folks. Mm-hmm. And one thing that chaplains could do that would be very valuable in a situation like this, I mean, the entire staff was just devastated by this loss, not just Mark, but especially him, but everybody who was in that room was so, so devastated um, that this would be a good time to to try to do a debriefing with staff um, or to talk with them individually if that wasn't possible as a group, just to you know, to give them an outlet for, for their feelings about this horrible, traumatic loss that they all just witnessed. I, I sort of, maybe this is the optimist in me, but when I see this, I sort of think in my head, oh, that happened in their fictional world later. We just didn't see it. 
you know, I just assume someone surely had a debriefing, right? <laughs> well, they did have, well, that's coming up later. <laughs> yeah, Mark is going to is gonna bear the scars of this one for several episodes. He's still dealing with all this. He doesn't, doesn't really work through it very well. And I wish that there had been a chaplain there to help him do that. Well, he's got a bunch of other stuff going on, too. So it's not like he has a lot of motivation. Oh, yeah, his marriage is falling or, apart at the same time, so. Yeah, I suspect that that's another reason that he didn't want to leave. He had nothing waiting for him. What if he had had support at home? Yeah, Susan asks him before he gets on the train, is Jennifer at home? And he doesn't answer. And then when he gets on the train is when he finally lets himself cry. Um, but he's alone, and he's he's going to be alone and try to deal with it on his own, which is not the best plan. But um, ER was very good on continuity. So like I said, for the, for the next few episodes, we'll still be um, dealing with the fallout from this one. So we will have opportunities to talk about that in our upcoming episodes. Um, as we close tonight, I think Carrie has totally fallen off her feed, but thanks to Carrie and thank you, Janie and Sarah Jane, for being here for a great conversation. Listeners, thank you for being with us. And we'll be back with you soon for episode 11 of ER Chaplains Watching ER. Take care. ER Chaplains Watching ER is produced at Top 5 Studios by my talented husband, Will Lawton. Music for the show is provided by our band, Rogue 2. You can hear some more of our great original songs at Rogue 2, that's T-W-O dot rocks. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app so other listeners can find us. Let us know your thoughts about the show on Twitter at chaplains underscore ER or comment on our Facebook page at chaplains watching ER. You can learn more about the hosts and find show notes for each episode on our website, chaplainswatching.net. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Stacy N. Sargent. That's S-E-R-G-E-N-T. I blog about hospital chaplaincy, step parenting, and other stuff at stacyandsargent.com, where you can also find links to get my book, Being Called Chaplain, How I Lost My Name and Eventually Found My Faith. Join us right here next week for more insightful conversations about ER. <laughs>